So our focus this morning is not on telling you not to give up as much as it is to remind you that somebody is there to help you. So if you would turn your Bibles to Ezra chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 8 through 13 today. We'll finish chapter 3 today. Sorry to miss last week, but some things couldn't be helped. <clears throat> I don't think y'all would have enjoyed this for an hour. So, And then the coughing and all that comes with it. <clears throat> Still not 100%, but glad to be back. I'm hot, feeling really hot up here. So, <clears throat> if you would, let's stand and we'll read verses 8 through 13 together. And be thankful that Ezra 3.8 is not your memory work for the week, because that's a long verse, y'all. <clears throat> <clears throat> Excuse me. So, this is the word of God for the people of God. Now, in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Jozadak made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from twenty years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers and Kadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for He is good. And his, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, <clears throat> and the sound was heard far away. Let me pray. God, we are thankful that there is no discouragement that can come our way that can deflect your love from us. God, we have said it and sang it this morning again and again. <clears throat> your steadfast love endures forever. And I pray that as we look at this passage today, through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would remind us of that, and you would show us what we need to know and how we need to live for your glory in the midst of a world that throws discouragement after discouragement in our way. Holy Spirit, have your way, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so we are going to start, obviously... Verses 8 and 9. Let me read that again. Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from twenty years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers and Kadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Hinnadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. Okay, so first thing we've got to do is establish some kind of time frame um, 
to get our bearings here in the story. <clears throat> For those of you that have been here, which I think is most of you, um, these guys were exiles in Babylon, and a guy named Cyrus, who was king of Persia, proclaimed after the Persian Empire overtook the Babylonian Empire that those who wanted to go back to Jerusalem and build the temple of the Lord could do that. <clears throat> and Ezra tells us, the book of Ezra tells us, that the Lord stirred the hearts of some 42,000 men, not counting women and children, and they all made a journey back to Jerusalem, which was <clears throat> different estimates from anywhere from a month to four-month journey. On foot, across the desert. They couldn't go directly across because the desert would have killed them, so they went up around the desert. Could have been as many as 200, 250,000 people or more, once you consider women, children, in addition to the 42,000 some odd that we talked about before. Now, from the best research that I could do, it seems like they left Babylon in the spring of 537 B.C. And again, there's some, you're not going to get unanimity in that, but that's about the best estimate that I could work out. So two weeks ago, we saw that they got the altar set up and resumed sacrifices and feasts in the seventh month of the Jewish calendar, okay, which would be September or October of our calendar. The Jewish calendar doesn't match up to our calendar. They work by lunar months and by the way that their feasts are laid out. So <clears throat> if they left in spring from Babylon, let's say March or April, and then they took them three or four months to get back to Jerusalem, and then the seventh month came. So if, if we're saying March or April they left, we look at the altar two weeks ago, say maybe September, October of the same year. Okay? <clears throat> so we're tracking so far. Today's passage in verse 8 says it was the second month of the second year after they're coming back to Jerusalem. So that would be in our calendar kind of April, May of 536 B.C. Remember, we're counting backwards because it's before Christ. We're going 537, 536. So you had basically from September, October when they set up the altar and resumed the sacrifices to April or May of the next year that we're looking at today. About six months. Just all that, all that being said, it's about six months between verse 7 and verse 8. <clears throat> now, part of my question is, why? What's six months? What's going on in six months? And obviously, the Bible is silent. We don't know. We just we read seven to eight and don't really think about it. But that's six months in between there. Um, were they collecting materials to build the temple? Well, we know that they were having logs sent down from Lebanon. So they were floating those down uh, and then bringing them inland to Jerusalem. Um, maybe they took a break to get their own homes in order. Maybe, uh, but maybe they rested on their laurels a little bit and said, hey, the, the, at least the altar's up. We can kind of relax and just live our lives. I don't know. All we know is that six months had passed between verses 7 and 8. And then what happens in verse 8? It says, Zerubbabel, who was the governor, and Yeshua, who was the high priest, made a beginning on the work to get this temple rebuilt. And remember now, this temple, this is the reason, the reason, they had returned to Jerusalem. The charge was return to Jerusalem and build the temple there so that 
the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, might be worshipped there. The temple was the reason they were going back. And the reason for the temple was so that God could be worshipped in Jerusalem again. So this is the reason. They were not back to merely live in Jerusalem again or even just offer sacrifices on an altar. No, they were stirred by God and sent by Cyrus to build the temple of God in Jerusalem. So I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and assume that they'd been collecting materials in the six months prior. Again, that's not canon. You don't have to count on that or bank on that. That's, just, that's, the, that's the supposition that I'm working from here. So these six months they were gathering materials because it would take a lot of stuff, right? And Cyrus had sent them back with some money and said, if you need money, more money, let me know. I'll give you what you need to get this temple built. So they're floating the logs down. They're buying gold. They're buying silver. They're buying other wood. They're getting all this stuff together. It's going to take a lot to get this thing done. And it was to be glorious because the God of heaven was to be worshipped there. And some of these folks remembered Solomon's temple, which was beyond anything we could probably imagine, especially for that time period. Of course, it had been torn to the ground, broken in pieces, carried off to Babylon. But some of these folks remembered that temple. Keep that in mind. And so now, I love this phrase, they made a beginning. They made a beginning. That's going to be important later. How many of you know that sometimes just getting started is most of the battle? Let me tell you what, yeah, how about you college folks, right? Huh? My goodness gracious, if I could just get started on a paper, I could get it done. But I'm sitting there going, oh, no. Uh, and again, I don't know what it is, this mental block that just, I don't want to start, oh, I don't want to do that. Oh, I don't. And again, some of us have the gift of procrastination that we exercise so ably most days of our lives, right? Um, and I don't get it. I, 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 I do it. I do it consistently. I do it constantly. And sometimes I put off doing it because I don't want to start doing it. But if we could just get started... If we could just take that first step, we can get a lot done. And then what it says here is, they made a beginning. If we can just get up the gumption to get started, we can get a lot done. We put, but we'll talk more about that later, but we'll put it off for now. <laughs> See what I did there? Anyway, back to our temple builders. <clears throat> what does it say that they did first? It mentions a bunch of supervisors. Now... These guys must have worked for the State Road of West Virginia, right? Because they had to have a bunch of people leaning on shovels, telling other people what to do. Really, these State Road guys, and no offense if you're listening to this and, and you're a State Road worker, but there's always five together. I don't understand. There's, no matter what's going on, there's five people standing there. I went to Fasten all the other day to pick up some stuff. How many were in there? Five together. One guy buying stuff or four guys standing around him going like this. I kid you not. I'm like, you guys have to work for the State Road. I didn't say that, but I was thinking it. <clears throat> anyway. So they start talking about supervisors. Now we covered Zerubbabel and Joshua a couple weeks ago. And again, they represented the government and the priestly line. The governor and the priests. But verses 8 and 9 also mention some other people. It says, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. But they're not done. 
And Jeshua, this is not the high priest, this is another Jeshua, with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Hinnadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. So we've got Zerubbabel, Jeshua, the rest of their kinsmen, the priests, the Levites from 20 years old and upward, another Jeshua, his sons and brothers, a guy named Cadmiel and his sons, who were sons of Judah, meaning they were the tribe of Judah, and the sons of Hinnadad and the Levites, who were their sons and brothers. Now, I don't know about you, but it seems to me that's a lot of chiefs, right? Too many chiefs, not enough Indians, is the old saying. That's a lot of chiefs. Now, what's that imply? It implies this is a big job. There's a lot going on here. Nothing wrong with having supervisors. It's right. It's good. To people to oversee. People who have the vision, who have the blueprint, and say, this is what we've got to do. You, 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 grab this, let's go. We've got to have those people. And there's a bunch of those people in this process. So this is a big project. And I don't know how many workers they had. Probably both volunteers, people that were paid, people that were conscripted to work. But it must have been a passel of them. I mean, just a bunch of them. A bunch of workers. This was going to be a major undertaking. They're building the temple for God to be worshipped in. This is a big deal. Kind of like dude training for the Olympics, right? It's a big deal. You train your whole life for that one moment. This was why they had come back. So they've got all these supervisors. They set up their supervising crew... And they made a start. They made a beginning. And then we start to see some results in verse 10. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. Now, so now we have something of this temple. We have something to see from their labor. Now it's not a very flashy thing to see, but it's surely a necessary one. They laid the foundation. Anybody ever invite friends over and say, hey, let's go look at my foundation of my house? It's a really nice foundation. Huh? But how many, anybody in here ever been through the process of building a house? Nobody? Okay, a couple of you? Man, you do get excited. The foundation's laid. Now, it's just a slab. I mean, just a slab of concrete usually. Or maybe even just a cleared piece of land with some cornerstones or something. But it's there. And it's progress. And so they've got this not very flashy foundation. And if a foundation's doing its job, you don't talk about it, right? Now, if it's not doing its job after everything's built, then you've got problems. But if it... if if it's doing well, nobody mentions it. But right when it's dug, right when it's laid, you're like, there it is. We've got to start here. I remember <clears throat> a friend of mine uh, had moved to Kentucky and he was building a ministry center. And they laid the foundation. And he was showing us the foundation. And I'm thinking, well, this is not very much. And it looks small. I mean, you know, but he was saying, right here's where this is going to be, and right here's where this is going to be, and right here's where this is going to be. And his statement was this, if you can't see it before you see it, you're never going to see it. So here we stand on this foundation, and I'm not seeing it. <laughs> I'm just being honest with you. But here they are, and the foundation is laid. So they've got something. 
They've got the most first necessary part of the temple done. They've got the foundation. You've got to have a foundation or you won't get anything else done. Jesus talked about this at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, right? He had two guys and they built on different foundations. One built on the sand. And the wise man built his house upon the rock. Right. So you got two different foundations. If your foundation's bad, the rains came down and the floods came up. The rains came down and the floods came up, y'all. The rains came down and the floods came up and the house on the sand went splat. But the foundation on the rock, yeah, it stood firm. So this foundation is important, and it's a big deal. So when they got it laid, what did they do? They worshipped. Specifically, they praised God with song. Now, get this picture in your head. you got a slab of something here. And they're like, let's sing. Let's worship. Okay? So, and they don't just get together and hold hands and sing kumbaya. Now the priests get on their junk, man. They're putting on their stuff, their vestments. And what do they bring out? They bring out the guitar and piano. No? What do they bring out? Symbols and what? <laughs> trumpets and cymbals. Anybody ever worship with trumpets and cymbals? <laughs> I'm thinking this sounds like a nightmare to me. <laughs> you want a worship service. I'm not thinking trumpets and cymbals, okay? That's probably the last thing I'm thinking. But here they come, man. Priests are decked out. They're in their garb, vestments, trumpets, cymbals. Bring out the trumpets and cymbals. We're going to worship today. Now, how excited would you have been? <laughs> but they were excited. And part of the reason why there were trumpets and cymbals and priests and vestments was because it says, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. Now what's that all about? It's pretty significant. King David was Israel's greatest king. He, he didn't really see Israel in all of its giant glory, but he was, he was a man after God's own heart. He was the psalmist of Israel. He wrote worship songs that they all sang. He commissioned for worship songs to be written. And he laid out some specific directions of how they were to corporately worship. And what he was doing, he wanted to build the temple. God said, not you, but your son. So he built a tent to bring the ark of God into. He, he, he was laying there one night and he said, here I am in my paneled house and the ark of God is up the road in somebody else's garage, basically. This isn't right. We need the ark of God here. So he starts to bring it in. Uzzah dies. He touches it. You know the story. And David's like, what the world are we going to do with this ark? Because we've got to get the ark in here. This is where we're going to worship God. And this represents the presence of God. So then he reads. He's like, oh yeah, we're supposed to carry it with poles. So they carry it with poles. They bring it in. And David lays out this whole order of worship for how they're supposed to worship once the ark comes in. So they bring the ark in. Now let's look at 1 Chronicles 16, 4 through 7. And here's what David said should happen when they worship the Lord once the ark comes in. <coughs> Excuse me. Then he appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph was the chief, and second to him were Zechariah, Jael, Shemaramoth, Jehiel, 
Mattathiah, Eliab, Benaiah, Obed-Edom, and Jael. That's, that's another Jael. Who were to play harps and lyres. Asaph was to sound the cymbals. And Benaiah and Jehaziel the priest were to blow trumpets regularly before the ark of the covenant of God. Then on that day David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph and his brothers. Now that sounds familiar, right? Sounds like exactly what they were doing. Now, minus the harps and lyres, maybe they didn't have those yet. I don't know. But we know they had the trumpets and the cymbals. Okay? But that wasn't all. He didn't just tell them how to do it. He wrote a song for them to sing, which is also in 1 Chronicles, also in Psalm. But 1 Chronicles 16, 34 through 36 is a part of it. And it says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. He said, Say also, Save us, O God of our salvation, and gather and deliver us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And all the people said, Amen, and praise the Lord. Now that's what David commanded, and that's what they did when they brought the ark in and put it in a tent so that they could wait to build the temple under Solomon. And David laid this out. So here they are, move. I don't, I don't have the time frame. I wish I would have looked it up. Between David, all the kingdom, the exile, coming back, and now they've laid this foundation back in Ezra. And how are they worshiping? The same way that David told them to when he first brought the ark back. So it was written down. And they followed the directions down to cymbals and trumpets and give thanks to the Lord for He is good. Because if you look at the next verse... Of Ezra, what do they sing? And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So what song did they sing? The same one David had sung before the first temple was built. For He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And is that not what we sang this morning? Is that not what we read in the Scripture reading as you read responsively? Why did we read responsively? Because they did it. And how did they sing? They sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. And is not that how we should have been singing this morning? Responding to God's forever enduring love with praise and thanksgiving. And what are we celebrating this week? Thanksgiving? That's pretty good timing, right? That's really why I didn't come last week. I wanted this to be this week instead of... I'm just kidding. This week of all weeks, we should respond to God with praise and thanksgiving today, this week, and... Forever, right? Forever God is faithful. Forever God is strong. So we respond by singing praise to Him. We respond by giving praise to Him with our mouth and with our lives. Romans 12, right? Offer your body as a living sacrifice because this is your spiritual service of worship. Now we'll talk more about that in application too. But let's look at verses 12 and 13, which will be our last ones today. <coughs> Excuse me. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men 
who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Man, up to this point, we were doing some good, right? We had supervisors, we had a beginning made, we had a foundation, we had priests in, in, their, in their priestly garb, we had symbols, we had trumpets. And then we get that word at the beginning of verse 12, but. So it's kind of like a, we're crescendoing here. Symbols, trumpets, praise, but. Again, this is a contrasting word. So it's setting what is about to be said against what has already been said. All this good had happened. But praise wasn't all that was going on. As many shouted aloud for joy. Now, time out. Just a second. When's the last time you shouted aloud for joy? Football game? Did you win at Monopoly? In your face! When's the last time you shouted aloud for joy in church? So we got this shouting aloud for joy, but some were weeping. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice. Now let me ask you this question. When's the last time you wept with a loud voice? When's the last time you wept with a loud voice in a worship service? Hmm. They wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. And they weren't just weeping, they wept with a loud voice. Why? What was going on that would make them weep? It wasn't weeping for joy because we know our verse starts with but. Putting that contrasting spin on what's going on. It says their weeping was from seeing the foundation of the house being laid. But wait a minute, isn't that good news? Isn't that progress? Isn't that a beginning? It is. But the difference in those who shouted for joy and those who wept is shown in verse 12. But many of the priests and Levites and the heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, the first temple, these were the ones weeping. Which means this foundation was nothing compared to the original temple. All their travels, all their organizing, the exile, all this stuff, all their hard work, And they look at this little slab of concrete and say, Oh no. Oh no. This is it. I saw the old temple. I wept when they tore it down. And it was glorious. It was majestic. It made God look big and beautiful. And now this... This is all we have to show for all this time we spent in Babylon, for coming back across the desert, for all the work and toil that we've already put in, all the dangers, toils, and snares that we've already been through, and this is it? 
Oh, no. Oh, no. It was nothing compared with the former glory of the temple of Solomon. It paled in comparison to the point that those who saw it wept with a loud voice. Now again, I think we can read over that and not stop and feel the pain that they were feeling. I think we can throw rocks at them and say they're just bad people, discouragers. But we don't really have something to compare this to. We can't put this in their perspective. We just can't do it. I mean, anybody ever gone back to your old home place and it was like run down and grown over? And you're like, oh man, that's where I grew up. And look at it, it's in tatters. I mean, that might come close to this, but these old guys had seen the former glory of that beautiful, solemn, and now they've got this little slab of something. And they weep loudly. They're embarrassed. They're disappointed. They're incredibly sad. I don't know if we can feel this angst properly, but it was surely there to the point of tears and loud wailing. And this small by comparison foundation would also remind them, hey, there's not going to be any ark that gets carried into this temple. Ark was gone, y'all. And the ark represented the presence of God. That's where God said He'd meet them on top of the mercy seat there. There's no ark now. There's not going to be an ark. It's gone. I suppose the Babylonians took it. Some people say it's in Ethiopia now. I don't know! But they knew they didn't have it. So maybe that was in their mind. Maybe they realized this thing that we've come back to is never going to be what it was when we left. Look at this place. Because when you see one discouraging thing, all of a sudden a lot of other things can become discouraging real quickly too, can't they? Not just this foundation. Look at our clothes. We're scratching out a living in this sand. I got robbed last night. I mean, just everything starts to pile up and everything's discouraging. Ever, anybody ever been there? When it rains, it pours. And these guys were wailing loudly. No ark, no glorious kingdom, no more abiding, residing glory of God with Israel. And they wept aloud. And the noise of the shouting and weeping was intermingled into a cacophony that could be heard a long way off, according to verse 13. So that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Now I'm going to try something, All right, Okay, we're going to do this this morning. Okay, Andrew, over. You guys are going to shout with praise, just rejoicing. Yay. Let's just do yay. Okay? Y'all are going to do yay from here over. To the left, y'all are going to go, oh. So we got yay and oh. Now with a loud voice, y'all, don't give me this yay. I want to hear what it might have sounded like. You're talking about thousands of people, though. Thousands. So we're going to do it with tens this morning, okay? So, what's y'all's line? Yay! All right, all right. Y'all follow the Nivens. They're the, they're the worship leaders this morning. Okay? And you, what's your line? Oh. 
Okay, so we're going to do it together. Yay and O. Oh. Okay? I'm going to count backwards from three. After you hear one, yay and O. Oh. Are you ready? Loud. I want you loud. I want brother over here to hear us, okay? I want him to hear us up at the seventh day. Oh, they're not there. Okay. Yay. O. Oh. Three, two, one. Yay! That's pretty good. That's pretty good. That turned out better than I thought it would. The people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. All they knew is that something was going on down in Jerusalem. Now, can you imagine being in a neighboring town or village? And you know that something's going up there. They've been doing all this construction. This wood's been coming in. They've been buying stuff. And then you hear trumpets and cymbals. And then yay and oh. Yay and oh. Yay and oh. Thinking, what is this? I don't know what was going on, but it was loud. And it was surely bound to raise some curiosity in those who bordered the city of Jerusalem. And it was bound to make those involved in the work to feel a little bit of sadness and probably even some disrespect. You ever worked hard on something and showed somebody and they're like, um, is that it? So now you've got these folks who came back from Babylon, had this single-minded purpose, the Spirit of the Lord had stirred up their hearts, and now you've got some division in the camp. You got some discouragement. You got some people going, you don't appreciate anything we've done, do you? And you've got some people saying, y'all don't understand. That's the first sign of division that we see in them. And there'll be more. Can you imagine pouring your heart and soul into something and, the, and at the presentation of it, people are weeping aloud because it's so inferior in their eyes to the one that was before it? Surely some discouragement. I would be discouraged. And so that's the end of our passage. That's the end of chapter 3. So how do we apply this to our lives? I've got four W's today. Okay? Here's your application points if you're taking notes and you're going to write them down. Four W's. Wake, work, weep, worship. Wake, work, weep, worship. So the first one is wake. Our application point here under wake is sometimes you just got to get started. Right, Bob? We're talking about prayer. We're talking about getting prayer started with Providence Bible Church on purpose. Bob comes to me this morning and he says, how about we start the week after Thanksgiving, Tuesday mornings at the CEF office from 6.30 to 8.30. People can just drop in and pray as they want. I said, sounds fantastic to me. Wake up! Let's get started. Do something. Right? Something. Wake up. Take the first step. Make a beginning. All those things that you've been thinking that you need to do, or that one thing you think you might need to do to kind of get your worship, your Christian life kind of jump-started. Maybe it's getting baptized. Maybe it's starting a regular reading and prayer time. Maybe it's starting that outreach in your neighborhood. Maybe it's telling that family member or friend about Jesus. Maybe it's becoming a member of the church. You won't get it done until you start. 
something. Make a beginning. Take the first step. Talk to somebody. Do something. Get the ball rolling. Now you may run into some discouragement along the way. You probably will. But at least start the process. Say the first words. Take the first steps. Jesus started preaching at some point. Paul started presenting himself to people after he was converted at some point. Wake up. Get started. At least take the first steps toward it. Whatever it is. That's the first application point. Make a beginning. Wake. The second one is work. Now, we've covered this a lot in a lot of different ways. (coughs) You wake, you get the ball rolling, maybe you run into some discouragement. What do you do? You keep working. You don't stop. You don't quit. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, for I have overcome the world, is what Jesus said. Did these folks stop their work? They didn't. Now they're going to. We're going to see next week. They do run into some problems and they do stop the work. But at this point, they didn't stop their worshiping and weeping. But in the midst of discouragement, keep moving forward. Take another step. One step. You, got, you took the first step. Keep taking steps. Keep taking steps. This guy in this video yanked his hamstring out of his leg, basically. And he had trained for this all of his life. He could have laid there and they could have carted him off on a stretcher. And he'd have been justified. He'd have been right. And they said, dude, you tore your hamstring. But what did he do? He wasn't going to win, but he got up and he started taking hobbling steps. Hobbling steps. Well, what happened after he started taking those hobbling steps? Somebody came down, didn't they? Dad showed up. And he said, son, you don't have to do this. And he said, yes, I do. And he said, we're going to do it together then. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. When the work is hard, when the work is discouraging, His steadfast love endures forever. Well, this isn't working out the way that I thought it was going to work out. Keep working. It probably won't work out the way you thought it was going to work out. You keep working anyway. One foot in front of the other. In the midst of discouragement, keep moving forward. Don't let all the talk about how things were better way back when keep you from doing the work in front of you. What were they stirred up in their hearts by the Spirit of God to do? They were sent to build the temple. So as people weep loudly at your pathetic little foundation, keep building. Keep working. And work and work and work. And work. An altar was a good start. A foundation's a good start. But that's not the ultimate outcome that they were looking for. We can't console ourselves having taken the first step. We've got to keep taking steps. We have to do what we are commanded and directed to do. So go into all the world and make disciples. You keep doing the work. And you keep doing the work. 
and you keep doing the work and you fall on your face and you keep doing the work and people discourage you and you keep doing the work and things look like they're not going to work out and you keep doing the work. Hand of the plow. A jaw of granite set in one way. I'm going this way. And I don't know what your specific work is, but I do know you're called to make disciples. I do know that you're called to preach the gospel to every creature. Maybe you haven't done much in those realms. You know what? Take the first step and keep on working. Keep on working and keep on working. So wake, work. Third one's a little different. It's weep. There are times that are profoundly sad in everybody's life. Ecclesiastes 3, I'll just read 1 through 4, but you probably have heard it. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. I wish I had a dollar. For every time I've told somebody up at the counseling place that they need to feel their sadness and that their sadness was right. Sad is not bad. Sad is not wrong. Sad is hard. But it's not bad or wrong. We are made in the image of God and we are meant to feel the full range of emotions that He feels, including sadness. The Bible tells us there's a time to weep. And I don't know that we're a sad enough people. And that's tough to say. Because I want to jump up, I want to blow the trumpet and bang the cymbals together and give thanks to the Lord for He is good, His steadfast love endures forever. There's poverty. There's slavery in today's world greater than any century before our time. There's death. There's cancer. There's illness. There's depression and anxiety. There's sin in my life. And I need to weep some for that. And I mean, I need to weep. I need to cry. I need to mourn that. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I won't say too much about this, but in my house, (laughs) growing up, we just didn't do sad. We didn't do sad. If you got sad, don't be sad. Okay. Well, that worked until I was eight and I watched E.T., And I don't want to ruin it for you, but there's some really sad parts in E.T., y'all. And here I am as an eight-year-old kid watching this movie, and I am profoundly sad. And I didn't know what to do with it. I thought I was bad. I thought I was wrong because I felt sad. Let me tell you what, guys. Let me encourage you. Get sad sometimes. Not a thing wrong with it. And you know what? Our sadness leaks out of our eyes. And it comes out of our mouths. When's the last time you told somebody, you know what, I'm just real sad today. I'm sad over the state of the world. 
I'm sad over all this trash I hear on the news every single day. That's right. These guys weren't wrong to weep aloud, I don't think. I think they were right to weep aloud. They were sad. They were sad over what has been lost. And it's sad. When you experience something sad like these older Jews experienced, when you feel overwhelmed with sadness, weep! And you know it's easy to do this when we look back over our lives, especially the older we get, and we, we regret choices, and we see places where we failed to correct our course. And sometimes we look at our lives and say, this is just not where I thought I would be at this state, in this stage of my life. I love what John Piper says, and y'all have probably seen this. He says, occasionally... Weep deeply over the life you hoped would be. Grieve the losses. Then wash your face, trust God, and embrace the life you have. You know how good advice that is? That is fantastic advice. Occasionally, weep, grieve. Then wash your face and get up and embrace the life that you have. And that's so good. I agree completely. And I would conclude this application point of weep by going where Piper went. Weep sometimes, then move on from the grief and live the life you have. There's a time to weep and there is a time to laugh. Embrace them both. Wake, work, weep, and worship. This whole passage today is about worship. This whole book is about worship, truthfully. And why would we worship? How would we worship? We worship because we know, even when we're weeping, that the Lord is good and His steadfast love endures forever. In the weeping, in the laughing, in the mourning, in the dancing, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. I will not leave you nor forsake you. I will stand at the tomb and weep with you. And then I'll be there when you're washing your face and embracing the life that you have in front of you. And I will enable you to worship me in spirit and in truth because these are the type of worshipers that the Father is seeking. And verse 11, Jason mentioned it this morning. We worship Him responsively. Not responsibly. I guess we worship responsibly. (laughs) Have a designated driver in case you get drunk in the Spirit, right? I just said that. (laughs) Worship Him responsively. As you see the steadfast love of the Lord that lasts forever. And you respond. Maybe even while you're weeping. With praise, with words, with songs. In the midst of a corporate gathering where every possible emotion is probably happening even right now, you respond to the steadfast love of the Lord that endures forever. You worship. And not only that, you worship according to the instructions. And we do have instructions. 
right? How do we worship God? We, we mentioned Romans 12, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. But how do we corporately worship? We worship according to what the Word says. So we get together and we sing songs because the Word tells us to sing songs. We get together and we participate in the Lord's table because that's encouraged. And Jesus said, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of Me. And we worship around the Word because it's by the Word that we're made clean and that we're strengthened and encouraged. We've got instructions. It's laid down for us. We don't get to pick and choose which parts of it we like and which parts of it we don't like. And again, you want to get me going. I know you don't because we've got five minutes left. Start telling me what's wrong with church. <laughs> okay, we'll just do what you want to do then. Go find you a church where they do what you want to do. That's not worship. It's not worship of the one true God. That's self-worship. That's idolatry. Now listen, do we do everything right here? No. I'm not saying we do. But I'm saying we've got the elements in place for God to act on us so that we can respond to Him in worship. We could sing the very same song they sang. We sang it this morning, right? And we should. But the words of the song are not the important part. If you're going to worship, which is our last application point, are you living according to the teaching of Scripture? That's worship. Not just Sunday morning. Have you obediently repented of your sins? Have you confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord? Have you proclaimed Him publicly through baptism? And are you celebrating Him regularly through the public assembly of the saints and participation in the Lord's table in submission to godly leadership according to the Word of God? That's how we corporately worship. And if you're not doing that, there's a lack of obedience in your life. Again, I'm not saying you've got to come to Providence to do everything right. No. But you don't get to pick and choose what you want to do out of this obedient worship. You adhere to it. What is written in the Word, what we see enfleshed in us through, through what we do in the table, through baptism, through worship. You don't get to pick and choose what you like and don't like. You don't get to pick and choose what fits your schedule and what doesn't. Because David said, I will not sacrifice to God that which costs me nothing. Worship is costly, but we worship responsively as we recognize the steadfast love of the Lord that endures forever. Wake, work, weep, worship. We saw it all today. And to go back to our video that we started with, it's obviously an inferior analogy because our Father never sits up in the stands and cheers us on. He doesn't come down just when we need Him. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. I will never leave you nor forsake you. He has come to make His home in our lives, through the Holy Spirit so that we don't have to wait for Him to make His way down the stands through security after we yank our hamstring out of our leg. No. 
He's been there. He will be there no matter what discouragement we come up against. And it is His power that enables us to cross the finish line. He doesn't let us go and say, you go finish now on your own. No, 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 no. He is the power that we respond to waking, working, weeping, and worshiping. And it's His grace that we trust in to give Him the praise, the honor, and the glory that belongs to Him alone. So we don't have to wait for hard times for God to show up. He's always with us. So we say, thanks. Let's pray. God, we struggle. We succeed. We mourn and we dance. We weep and we laugh. And through it all, in the midst of it all, you are there. And you encourage us and you strengthen us. And you tell us to keep our hand to the plow. And you remind us that whoever puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So God, help us to wake up and take the first step that we need to take, whether it's to know you intimately and personally for the first time. Help us to obey the gospel, the command of the gospel, to repent of our sins and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of those sins. Or, maybe we've done that and we've taken obedient steps, but we've taken a break to get our lives straight or whatever. God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, convict us of our sins and draw us back to you and remind us this is for your glory. And in the midst of discouragement, you are here. And your steadfast love endures forever. So help us to wake, work, weep, and worship with everything that we do so that you get honor, glory, and praise through everything that happens in our lives. We trust you that you've started a good work and that you're going to bring it to perfection at the day that we see Jesus face to face. Thank you for your faithfulness. It is great indeed. We praise you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction and we'll be done. Now, may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you.